Last week, I totally cut that video off. I just, something about, you know, Chad doing the voiceover just didn't feel right because he wasn't there. Um, but, I mean, last week, Chad was praying for a miracle. He was down 50 points to me in fantasy football. <laughs> and he didn't get it. And uh, normally, in these kinds of cases, we would take a moment to reflect upon that and be with Chad. But... Um, I think I deserved it. Um, but people are, are really sensitive. There's sensitive topics out there. Um, and actually, uh, at Costco, there's one place that I despise working at. Out of all the departments, and I've worked at nearly all of them, um, uh, Brandon, who works at Costco, works at the service deli, which is an actual, it's, it's a horrible place to work. It's the chicken room. Like, anything called the chicken room just doesn't sound like it's something you'd want to do. So there's that. That's pretty bad. Uh, the food court, I, I don't like getting out of there and be like, sweet, I smell like hot dogs. So that's, that's not very fun, but it's actually uh, at the door, the entrance door. And it's like, Why? That's easy. You stand there and you count people as they walk in. Of course, you have to smile and greet them, make eye contact, of course. Welcome to Costco. It's great to see you. So that's, that's easy. Uh, you, you make sure that uh, no paid merchandise is leaving. Uh, that's easy. But there's this other thing, this hidden thing that I'm going to tell you about that nobody probably knows about. Service animals. We have to address animals coming into the warehouse. And this is the most sensitive topic for people with service animals because any perceived violation of their rights is going to cause chaos. See, but we are, we have to ask two questions. We have to ask. Is, is that a service animal? And then we have to ask, oh, what service does the animal perform? Right? So uh, this, was, this came down um, uh, in 1990 was uh, the American Disabilities Act, and it had several amendments and iterations after that. Uh, one of the amendments as recently as 2011 said that only dogs can be service animals. But it does make special note, however, of uh, miniature workhorses. Okay, so, so there's that, and there was also, as recently as 2007, a ruling that said that we can ask those questions because we're trying to determine the legitimacy of the service animal, but we can't ask, of course, you know, hey, what you got? You blind? <laughs> like, we can't ask, like, what, what disability do you have? You look fine to me. No, we can't ask that, so we ask, what does this, what services the animal perform? And I don't, I don't think that this is communicated to, to the community of uh, people with service animals very well, because no matter how nicely I try to say it, you know, I see, I see someone coming up with an animal, and I'm thinking, oh, gosh, I wish I wasn't here right now. Oh, this is horrible. Oh, my gosh. And they get there, and I'm like, hey, miss, um, we just have to ask and make sure that that's, that's a service animal. Are you kidding me? Well, of course it's a service animal. You think I would try to come in if it wasn't a service animal? You ignorant. I should talk to your manager. You two-toned, zebra-head, slime-coated, pimple-farming, paramecium brain, munching on your own mucus, suffering from service dog envy. I don't believe you. Right? And then they huff and puff away. And I go about feeling like a horrible person. But it gets worse. See, because if they say it's a therapy dog or it's a dog for emotional support, I'm thinking, no, why do you say that? Don't say that. Just say it does something for you. I don't care. Just don't say that. Because then I'm obligated to say, well, I'm sorry, according to the American Disabilities Act of 1990, Therapy dogs and emotional support animals are not service animals. In fact, that means that federal preeminence does not apply in this case, and you have to follow local and state food laws and 
basically your animal can't come in. <laughs> right? That's, I, I'm, I just might as well have just said, hi, um, I see that you have an exceptionally ugly child. Do you mind just leaving them outside? Because we're afraid that the patrons on the inside will vomit when they see how grotesquely malformed he is. Right? I might as well have said that because that's the reaction. What? Blah, 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 and I just want to walk away. I just say, I can't handle this. Uh, oh, gosh. I actually have goosebumps just thinking about the sort of confrontation this causes. But I had this uh, one time where a lady came up, and she was holding something in her arms, and it was wrapped up. And I figured, oh, she has a return item. And we have to say, hey, uh, just go through the exit door, and uh, that's where you do your returns. So he said, you know, miss, if you have a return, you'll just go ahead and, and go through the other door, and you'll do that first before you shop. He said, oh, no. This is my service animal. I said, oh, I'm, I'm very sorry. And what, what service does the dog perform for you? And she opens it up, and she says, oh, no. This is my emotional support turtle. And I, I was devastated. What do you do? What do you do? I, I mean, someone who's relying on the emotional stability of a turtle is probably not going to respond very well when you say that's definitely not allowed. So I did the unthinkable. I shook my head. I said, okay. And I let her in. I didn't, I didn't have it in me. It just wasn't there. I wasn't sold on it anymore. And, you know, I could make the point here that uh, in many ways we live in a world where we rely on ridiculous things sometimes. Where in many ways we try to replace God in our lives. And it's maybe because we don't uh, believe that God performs uh, miracles in our own lives on a personal level. Maybe we only believe that uh, miracles are really public demonstrations uh, that are there to convince people of Jesus' ministry or something like that. You know, but th that could be debated. Really, the point is that people are incredibly sensitive about some things. And I think that miracles, and the topic of miracles, is a sensitive, sensitive subject. And we have to be careful about how we talk about that with other people. When my dog, Rocky, was diagnosed with acute kidney failure, I was devastated because my dog loved me and I loved him. And, and just the way that dogs love you is incredible, it's unique, that they always want to please you, and they listen to you, and when they don't listen to you, they feel really bad. And, they, and they are, they're probably thinking, will he ever love me again? I just want him to love me again. The way he would put his head on my lap and just look at me with knowing eyes. Sometimes it was because of food. I, I loved the way he begged. And so one of the first things that I did is I took my wife's hand when we were in our kitchen and I prayed for a miracle. I said, God, you can make this go away. Please make it go away. Let my dog eat again. Let that weight come back. Give him new kidneys, fix his kidneys, whatever. See, but as his health continued to decline and his weight continued to go down, so did my hope and my longing for a miracle. My puppy was going to die. But he, he would still come to me and, and, and put his head on my lap, but I could tell that it was weaker. His eyes, his knowing eyes were droopy still and they were weak and, and I couldn't bear it any longer. See, but he hates the vet and I couldn't have his last moments be there. So I went 
into my backyard, and I dug a very deep and dark hole, and we called the vet out to my house, and I held him on my lap, and I wept for him, and then I had to carry his body, and I, I felt it lifeless, and I had to put it in the hole, and I had to bury him. And now there is a grave in my backyard that tells me that that miracle I wanted, I didn't get. And I think that miracles are a sensitive topic for some people. Because for every story of a miracle, there's a million more of tragedy and hurt and loss. And so when we, we talk about miracles with people, we have to be sensitive to those stories where people wanted them and they didn't get them. Because I don't, I don't want to be that person who says, you know, if you really want a miracle and you didn't get it, it's because you didn't want it enough. You didn't have enough faith. I think... I think that's dangerous. I think that's wrong. God performs miracles. God is the one who does miracles. He knows when they're needed and when they're not. And so I think that's incredibly important as we navigate the stories of miracles. Because when we are addressing them in, in in other people's lives, and we are sharing our stories, we need to be attuned to those stories that people have where they feel robbed. And maybe your story, like I said last week, could be a miracle for them. But it's important that we listen to the stories of people. With, with that said, um, uh, oh, actually, sorry. Um, in, in 1 Corinthians 12, 8 through 12, actually, uh, Paul is talking about this thorn he has in his side, this torment of Satan. And he is wanting God to get rid of it, um, but he doesn't. Uh, in, in 2 Corinthians 12, 8 through 12, he says, concerning this, the, the thorn in his side, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weakness so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weakness, with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, I am strong. See, Paul is recognizing his desire for a miracle, for some ailment, either physical or, or spiritual, to be taken from him. Instead, Paul really becomes the miracle for others because in his weakness, in his hurt, he still boasts of Christ and when people see that, they see God's strength. See, miracles are not just about having enough faith or just believing hard enough. It's believing that they could happen, that they do happen but also having the resolve to trust God even when it doesn't. And that's why last week I brought up the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who were uh, about to be thrown into the furnace of fire. And they say, essentially, hey, God, we trust that you can do this. We believe that you will, but if you don't, we still trust you, we still love you. And that's how we need to live our lives, remembering that, because we'll find that people today are in their own furnace, and they're feeling that. And what we need to encourage them is not just, hey, you're going to get a miracle, but 
God can. Believe that he can. But how do we trust God even when he doesn't? With that said, there's a a story. I just spoke to my mom last night to make sure that I had the details um, of her hitchhiking. Sorry. Um, which is always a safe way to travel, right? She um, uh, was uh, uh, in high school, uh, and she had gotten in a fight with her boyfriend, uh, which if you ever get in a fight with your significant other in high school, it's got to be like a big exit, right? Um, and she, she had a, a rough upbringing, so she already didn't have the best influences in her life. And so when she stormed out of there, she just said, I have to get out of here. I have to leave. And so she does the whole hitchhiker's thumb thing, and she gets picked up. And my mom, uh, you know, she, she had done this before, but she gets along with everybody so she's just do- doing her chit-chatty thing with this person, you know, you know, and then she lets him know, uh, yeah, you're going to take a left up here, and then he takes a U-turn. What? That's weird. And then he turns around, and he looks at her, and apparently he looked a little like me, which that's cool, I guess, uh, but so you're kind of getting the image, Right? He looks at her and he says, have you ever been in the car with a maniac? Immediately, my mom's, you know, invincible veneer just crumbles. And she's like, oh no, oh my gosh, oh no, oh no. People told me not to do this. I can't believe this. I can't believe this is happening. Oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. She's bawling. She's breaking up. She's destroyed, right? This is horrible. And then he says, have you ever been tortured? Oh, gosh. So she is crumbling. Oh, my gosh, I can't believe this is happening to me. Everybody said, don't do this. Why, why is this happening to me? And then he goes on and tells her all the things he's going to do. And as my mom is bawling in the back seat, he finally says, shut up. I'll take you home but I never want to see you on these streets again. Okay. (laughs) And she, she didn't. She didn't hitchhike ever again. In fact, her sisters who would hitchhike, they didn't either. She convinced them of that. And before I talked about uh, last week how the how of an event can make it great, it can make it crazy, but only the why can make it miraculous. So how this event occurred uh, is not what made it miraculous, that she was picked up by a seemingly sociopathic individual uh, who had uh, a a spontaneous turn of heart, possibly, uh, and let her go. The fact is, is that when my mom reflects back on this event, she sees it as an act of God participating in her narrative, an act of God orchestrating this event, allowing it to happen so that she would learn, so that her youthful idea of invincibility would be shattered and she would make smarter decisions. She saw God's handiwork in this event. It's the why that made it miraculous. I got all the details right, I trust, yeah. Um, Last week, um, just as a reminder, because I know um, a lot weren't here, but the points I made were that a miracle is not just something that defies scientific understanding. Uh, It is rather the manifestation or a sign that points to Christ. Uh, The the Greek word Simeon, it it means sign. Um, And two, we don't know if or when miracles will occur. Only that we should live in faithful anticipation that they will. The third point I made was that a worldview that presupposes that God does not interact with the world in miraculous ways works in a way 
to confirm that which it presupposes. In other words, if you have faith that it will not occur, it probably won't. And the last point I made was that miracles are often the result of how faith views the world. My mother viewed the world with this lens of faith, and she saw God in this story. Nothing about it defies scientific understanding. It's a crazy story. But it's the fact that it's this story that led my mom to see God. I I remember her telling me when I was younger that she thinks maybe it was an angel. To be scared to death but still see God in that is a miracle. Which brings me to one of the points that I want to make today, and is that miracles have witnesses. And, and see, this is an interesting point because uh, it, it defines an, a crazy aspect of God's interaction with the world where the operation of miracles is largely contingent upon us, upon us witnessing them. It's, it's like the age-old uh, riddle that says, I don't know if it's age-old, I don't even know when it came from, but it's the riddle that says, if a tree falls in the middle of the forest and there's no one there to hear it, Does it make a sound? And and to apply this theologically to this point, it's like if an event of supernatural proportion, an incredibly great event occurs, but there's no one there to witness it, is it a miracle? And I think the answer is no. Because a miracle is a sign. It's evidence of divine commission in attestation of a divine message. It's a token of the presence and working of God, the seal of a higher power. And with no one there to witness it, none of these things can be. Uh, In science, uh, there's this really cool um, thing known as the observer effect. And basically what it says is that the act of observing a phenomenon actually changes the nature or state of the very thing you're observing. So uh, when you observe an electron, for instance, um, just you observing it changes how that electron behaves and um, uh, it changes the state of that electron such that we we can only predict what the prior state was. We can never observe what it was because Having observed it, we've changed it. It's like uh, looking into a mirror. When my wife looks into a mirror, she sees her reflection, which is very beautiful. When I look into a mirror, I see my reflection, which uh, I wonder how I got so many gray hairs. I wonder when I'm going to get bald like my father. Um, I see a lot of things, but it's different because because the observation is happening. There's no just looking into a mirror and seeing what its state is. It's always going to reflect what it is that is observing it, so to speak. So we witness this uh, in science and in physics specifically, and I think we witness this in theology. Uh, So to take it uh, that way, in theology, um, we could have a really great event, a really great event, but it's only miraculous once it's been observed. Because a miraculous event is contingent upon someone seeing it and seeing God in it. And seeing that God is an active presence in the world. That God still moves today. Observation can alter a state from a great state to a miraculous state. And I think this idea is amazing because it shows how God has designed miracles in a way that we participate, that we are really required for the existence of miracles. God has done great things, but only when we're involved has he done the miraculous. Um, So if there's a a witness to a miracle, um, there's always a a miracle worker. Um, And that's really my second point, that there's always a person enacting a miracle. Uh, Let me tell you uh, a story about George Abbott. 
Um, he was uh, having some really, really bad stomach pains, really bad. And his wife was thinking, wow, if, if he is acting like this, because he usually had really high pain threshold, he didn't complain about things, but he was saying, I don't know that I can handle this anymore. She knew it was bad. So she rushed him to the hospital, and it turns out he had a rare form of cancer that was affecting his gallbladder. And so they had to operate. They took it out. But when they were in there, they noticed um, that it had spread to his liver. And it was um, a pretty grim prognosis, um, because spreading to the liver, um, there wasn't really much treatment. Uh, he didn't have many options, and the options that he did have oftentimes uh, would take his life or take your life. And um, because this was um, so concerning, um, uh, Dr. McQueen, who, who was their friend, he's the one who diagnosed him, they thought, you know, it is still important for us to get a second diagnosis. But same thing. Same thing, it's, it's spread to your liver. But this doctor was a little bit more optimistic. He thought, I, I think we should operate. Um, and what we'll do is we'll, we'll take out that portion, uh, but if we see that it's spread, because right now it's only in the upper portion of the liver, if we see that it's spread everywhere, we're not going to operate because at that point you won't really have chance. And so... Carly, his wife, uh, took it to the church in prayer. He was going to go get this operation done. Uh, she even called the 700 Club and got people to pray for that as well. And when they were in for the operation, she got that phone call that she was very scared to get, right? She knows she needs to find out, but she doesn't really want to. <laughs> She picks up the phone, and she drops it, and she sobs. Because when the doctor went in there, he didn't operate. Not because it had spread everywhere, because they couldn't find it. They couldn't find it. He said, I don't know what happened, but this is a perfectly healthy liver. And so, George said that God had performed a miracle in his life. He said, I don't know if God gave me a new liver or if he just took away the cancer. All I know is that God did a miracle in my life. And, and over the years of, of evaluating and checking it, it's still the same. No cancer. And, and one of the things he says uh, he says, some people today say, well, miracles went out with the apostles. Well, I'm here to tell you that miracles do not get, go out with the apostles, that God is a God of miracles, and he is a healer today, George said. He gave me a miracle, the miracle of life. But this touches on an important disagreement uh, among believers um, and that's the idea that miracles don't happen anymore, that they went out with the apostles. See, but George, his, his theology in many ways is informed by his experiences. And God performed a miracle in his life. So it would be really peculiar for him to try to maintain the idea that miracles don't happen anymore. But, but why are people saying that miracles are no longer performed in the world. Well, the argument uh, goes something like this. They take Ephesians 2.20, uh, where it says that the church was uh, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets and Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus himself, who's the cornerstone. And, and they say that miracles as a sign were used as a, a public confirmation of the ministry of these people. So, for instance, uh, uh, Moses had uh, the miracle of the burning bush all the way to the parting of the Red Sea, and that was used as a confirmation 
of him being a prophet of God. Uh, for Jesus, you have everything from the virgin birth to the resurrection and the ascension into heaven, which was a confirmation, uh, all his countless miracles as well, but that's a confirmation of his ministry and as his being the Son of God, as being God incarnate. Uh, and then you had the apostles who uh, did uh, healings and exorcisms as a confirmation and a sign of their ministry for God. And since that age is over, that age of authentic, authentication that they call it, um, we're now in the age of the church where miracles don't happen because there's no need for that authentication. And one of their biggest points is that because, because miracles are public demonstrations, uh, John MacArthur actually says that there are no private miracles. There are no personal miracles. They're all public demonstrations of God. And we could point out that if, if by private you mean that there was just nobody there to witness it, then that doesn't make any sense because the definition of a miracle includes a witness. It's a sign and confirmation to a person that Christ and God are operating in the world. You can't have a miracle without a witness. It'd be like saying that the only way for the color red to be red is for it not to be by orange on the color spectrum. But red just is by orange on the color spectrum. That doesn't make any sense. Or that in order for water to be water, it can't have any hydrogen. It's H2O. It has to have hydrogen. That's what water is. So, so for charity's sake, they don't, they don't mean that. They can't mean that. Maybe they mean there are no private miracles that occur just to one person, that they're, they're personal to that person's life. But then we can point out that there was no corroborating witness there when Moses saw the burning bush. Nobody was there. Or, 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 or the miracle of uh, miraculous conception with Mary. That was to her. She heard that message. There were no corroborating witnesses. Or, or, or maybe even Jesus to the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, where he just prophetically knows these things. That was just he and her. That was her moment to see God at work. So I, 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 don't, I don't think it's that. See, but all of those things aren't important because I think w the problem actually stems from us thinking that it's somebody other than God that's performing these miracles. Miracles always require a miracle worker, but it wasn't Moses, and it wasn't the apostles. It was always God. It's always through and of the power of God that miracles are enacted in the world. And unless we're willing to deny that God is continuing to work and operate in the world today, then miracles still exist because God is still moving and active in the world today. But this, uh, oh, actually, so in Deuteronomy Deuteronomy 31.8, it says, uh, It is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. So he won't leave you or forsake you. But you might say, well, that's in Deuteronomy. That's to the Israelites. That's an Old Testament verse. Quit ripping things out of context. See, but then in, in, in Hebrews 13.5, the sentiment is, is said again. And this is in the New Testament to Christians. It says, keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. God was present in the Old Testament and God was present in the New Testament and God is present today. So if the first point was that miracles require a witness, the second is that uh, God is the ultimate miracle worker. But the distinction between public miracles and private miracles um, leads me to a third point I want to make, and it's my own distinction, uh, namely that miracles are big and small. 
I mean, I, I, I don't know if you noticed, but I titled this series Miracles Big and Small, and you're probably wondering why did he t- entitle it that, because he hasn't spoken about that at all. <laughs> Here it is. <laughs> um, in, in the philosophy of religion, we've largely done miracles a disservice because we've attempted to define miracles in a way that makes it an argument. Uh, we'll say something like, uh, one, uh, this is how, how uh, the philosophy of religion works. They always turn things into a syllogism, this line of argument. It says, one, miracles are feats that, by definition, do not have a naturalistic explanation. Okay? I've already disagreed with that point, but whatever. Uh, two, feats with no naturalistic explanation require a supernatural explanation. Three, God is the best supernatural explanation. And four, Miracles exist. And five, therefore, following from premises, one through four, if miracles are supernatural and God is the best supernatural explanation and miracles do exist, God then exists. Or probably exists because this is an inductive argument. But miracles are not an argument. They're not a syllogism. They are a sign of God's work and his real and present movement in the world to, do, to those who are witnessing it. It's not intended to be some sort of syllogistic argument. Uh, and, and it ruins, in many ways, miracles for us. Because, uh, for instance, the burning bush, uh, there were no uh, corroborating witnesses. Uh, it's possible, and some have argued, uh, that it was some sort of uh, ethnogenic drug, which is like a spiritual-inducing drug, uh, that caused them to have this uh, real and vivid yet false spiritual experience of a burning bush. Uh, Some have argued that uh, a naturalistic explanation for the miraculous conception is that Mary, you know, she was unfaithful. And uh, to cover up her infidelity in the resulting pregnancy, she uh, made up a story that she was visited by an angel that let her know of this. Um, Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. Maybe he just went there and found Lazarus prone, but he still had a pulse, uh, and he was able to resuscitate him with uh, CPR, maybe. Right? These, these, are, uh, these are possible naturalistic explanations. And they result in many ways from us trying to redefine what miracles are. Miracles are a sign to those who witness them. And and here's the crucial thing. If anybody went to Mary and said, I've got an alternative hypothesis, hear me out. You got pregnant from somebody else, and then you just made the whole thing up. Because Mary would know in her bones that this was wrong, She wouldn't believe it because it was her miracle. It was the witness to her that God is present and active in the world and in her life. There's no convincing a person like that. And and the, the saying goes, a person with an experience is never at the mercy of a man with an argument. See, but there, there are miracles, and I, and I do want to point this out, that are evidential in nature. I think that uh, veridical experiences of consciousness after death that give you empirical and, and testable, independent uh, confirmation that what you experienced was real, uh, where there are tons of examples of p- people who are brain dead and they hear things that they couldn't have possibly heard or seen things they couldn't have possibly seen in a state of death um, that are confirmation uh, for the miraculous. Um, and, and this is because people tend to be convinced uh, by these stories that something supernatural is involved, even though they weren't direct witnesses. Um, the resurrection of Jesus continues to confound historians and philosophers alike. They just don't know how to even create a naturalistic explanation that that accounts for all of the crazy things that happened. They don't know uh, 
how the disciples who were scattered and distraught by Jesus dying, their whole idea of a Savior was destroyed. They apparently had a post-mortem visitation with Christ, and all of a sudden they were willing to go out and to die for it. See, but if it wasn't true, they would have died, and many of them did, for something they knew was false. Also, there was this sudden conversion of Saul of Tarsus, Paul, our our biblical figure, who was one of the biggest critics of Christianity. All of a sudden, he has a a post-mortem visitation. And he changes his life, and he too is willing to suffer and die for this truth. There's uh, the empty tomb. There's several other post-mortem visitations. There's the reaction of the Romans. There's so much. This story of resurrection continues to cause people to believe in the work and action of, of God, even though they weren't direct witnesses. There are also uh, real uh, medical accounts uh, uh, verified empirically of people spontaneously being healed of otherwise terminal illnesses. Um, and usually through the power of prayer. These accounts are evidential in nature, and I call them big miracles. They're big because they really transcend their moment of personal witness to some individual and work as an evidential structure that even convinces other people who were not directly involved. It's big because this actually does sort of argue for the existence of God. But then there are other miracles. The ones we see when we look at our child and we see that God must exist in this world. When we, when we look out into the vastness of the ocean and we're drawn to the bigness of God, the vastness of space lets us know the vastness of the person who created it. When, when we see God Uh, in the story of our hitchhiking. (laughs) These are small miracles. And they're not small because of their impact on our lives. They're small because of their scope. They are meant for us. And sometimes these miracles are the most beautiful. And they're the most profound. Because it shows us that God is willing to operate in our lives on a personal level, that he's speaking to us, that he is working with us. They're cool because they're small. Because God is willing to operate in the smallness of our own lives despite how vast he is. There's a a story that my wife has. She's in the back, so she doesn't get to hear it, so I can get some things wrong, I guess. She um, wanted to try this thing called a treasure hunt. Uh, And she was with two of her friends, uh, Sierra and Jason. And a treasure hunt is when you just pray. And you write down whatever you think God has given you, like what you see. Everything that my wife wrote down had a question mark at the end, like round sign. I don't know. That's what I'm seeing. Uh, black chair. Okay. Uh, crosswalk. These are, you know, she's, she's praying that God would just, you know, uh, allow her to see some things because the treasure hunt is them going out then and walking the streets in trying to see if God is leading them to somebody or people that need his message. And so they just go, and uh, this is kind of an uncomfortable experience. Like, I don't know, this is weird. And I don't know, here's a crosswalk. They cross 
crosswalk and then she looks over and she sees a restaurant with a circle sign with black chairs under it. There's people in it. She says, okay, I mean, that's, that's pretty good. I mean, they, they must be people that we're supposed to talk to. And so they walk up and Jason says, hey, look, we're doing a treasure hunt. Uh, basically, we wrote down some things um, that you guys seem to have. And Jason had been praying all day, so he had a big list. And he was like, uh, ball cap. Okay, so he was wearing a ball cap, green sweatshirt. You had a green sweatshirt on. Uh, woman sitting down with three guys. Okay, yeah. Um, it just goes down this list of all of these things that they have. And they're like, okay, this is weird. Uh, and, they're, and they're kind of getting uncomfortable. And then he asks, is there anyone who has, like, rib pain? And one guy's like, well, I do. Okay. Well, can we pray for you guys? And so they pray, and they, and they pray that he would feel better. And uh, he says, well, I, I do kind of. But you can tell these, these people are uncomfortable. And, and they ask, well, is there anything that you want us to pray for you about? And the girl says, I would if I thought it worked. And, and, and my wife has a heart of gold, so that, that irked her. She couldn't, she couldn't just leave after that, right? And, she's, and, and so they're, you know, they're getting ready to leave, but my wife is like, no. No, I can't. We do believe in the power of prayer. We do believe that it works. So, so can we pray for you? And she goes on to say, well, I was on parole and, and, and I got caught with weed. And that was my last chance. I'm going to have to go to jail and I'm probably going to have to go to jail for a while. Tomorrow or Monday is my court date. Um, and I'm not going to be able to see my kids. And I'm really concerned that they're just going to get taken away and have to go into foster care and, and get stuck in the system. And, and it's scary. My wife is thinking, well, you sort of deserve it. Uh, no, she's nicer than that, but probably still thinking that. Um, and she prays for them. You know what? God, it, this is God's thing. I'll pray for you. I'll pray for you that you don't have to go. But even if you do, I'm going to pray that you'll find God in that circumstance. And so they pray, and, and they, they talk to this girl. After that prayer, after I think that group got to see their heart, that it was real and sincere, they all of a sudden were new people, and they just wanted to talk. They talked for an hour. They wanted to buy them beers and everything. So they're just sitting there and talking to them for a while, and then they commit to the girl, uh, both Sierra and my wife. They say, you know, we're going to come visit you. We're going to come visit you in jail on Monday. And so when uh, my wife and Sierra go there, they go to jail and they say, well, she's not here. And they're thinking, gosh, now she's going to be in more trouble because she missed her hearing. And they're like, well, we're, we're not sure that she missed her hearing. It's possible that she went. I mean, you'd have to go to the courthouse. So they go to the courthouse and they say, well, no, no, she came, but we let her go. And they're like, yes, this is awesome. But we don't get to share in the joy of it with her. We don't get to see her. And they say, well, God can do one miracle. What's another? Let's just walk the streets. And so they walk for two hours, and they're at this point pretty disheartened. So they're about to head back, and they're going uh, around the corner of a, of a building here, and they walk here, and they meet. There she is, like right at the corner. And it was so cool for them to see that they saw it as a miracle, which is cool. But this girl did too. That's what's cool. That miracles happen even today. And, and I'm out of time, but one of the things that, uh, the things that we talked about was, you know, miracles require a witness, and there's a miracle worker who's always God, but one of the things I'm really going to touch on next week is that in, in really this age of the church, prayer 
is the language of miracles. And so when you go out from here, that's probably the one thing I want you to reflect upon. I want you to think about all of those things in your life, and it doesn't matter how small, where you think, wouldn't it be cool if God could change this? Even if he just changed my feelings of this. Maybe he just changed my perception on this situation. Wouldn't it be cool if God interacted in my life in a real way? And then... I want you to pray about it. Because if you're praying about it, I think at least now, when it comes to miracles, you'll finally be speaking its language. You pray with me. God, we just thank you so much that you are still present and active today in the world, that you perform big miracles, but most importantly, that you perform the small ones in our lives, that you are willing to interact with us, God, and and change our hearts on things. You give us signs of how you work and how you operate, God. Give Give us a faith that sees the world differently, that sees you operating in the world. God, and allow us to speak your language. Allow us to fight for for what we desire in prayer, God. Let us fight for it in prayer. We just thank you so much that when we do, you listen. God, I just thank you so much for the miracles that you do perform. And I pray that you would just be with us as we go out through our week and that even in our own lives, you would show us small miracles. And we love you in your precious and holy name. Amen.